you can be turning to Micah 3. <clears throat> but as you turn there, I'm going to actually remind you of one of Paul's letters. <laughs> because how Paul crafts the beginning of one of his letters is going to help us understand Micah here. It'll cue us in on a very similar route, a, a similar writing device that Micah is taking with his oracles. If you received Paul's letter for the first time, it would have thrown you for a loop. Because near the end of chapter 1 of Romans, Paul states a shockingly familiar demonstration of our culture today. He, in essence, is saying they sin like this, they sin like that, homosexuality, God-haters, mockers, and arrogant, and disobedient to parents, and unloving, and unlovable. And all of us religious people are saying, preach it, brother. And so Paul does. They not only do they sin, they applaud others who sin more. And then religious people are saying, amen, and amen. And then Romans 2 comes, and Paul gives the meanest, nastiest, best backhanded slap a humble Christian could ever do and says you're just as bad. <laughs> and we'll look at those actual words he says later, but, but that's the idea. So the listener, the reader in essence is saying, wait, wait, we were talking about them. <laughs> and Micah, like Paul after him, first delivered an oracle to the northern kingdom, and that was to be expected. That's the northern kingdom. Jerusalem wasn't there. The city of God wasn't there. They're wiped off the face of the map by the Assyrians. They're God-haters. They're false worshipers. They left. They seceded. They're the south with the slaves in our language. Only in Micah's days, there's the north with the pagan worship sinners, and they left the city of David. And so Micah spent two chapters saying, they're bad, they're going to be judged. And those in the southern kingdom are saying, like we self-righteous religious people, yep, preach it, they got to come back to Jerusalem. And I actually didn't approach it this way last week, but the onset of chapter 3 is the same device of Paul. A backhanded, humble Christian slap to the face. You're just as bad, Judah. And we come to the last verses of Micah 3. And if you weren't here last week, that's okay. Because the last few verses in Micah 3 kind of acts like a last time in Micah that you hear at the beginning of your favorite TV show. <laughs> so, I invite you to stand for the word of the Lord today. We're, we're covering Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through chapter 4, verse 2a. We're going to end in the middle of verse 2. I'm breaking up verse 2 for preaching purposes for this week and next. So, Micah chapter 3, beginning with verse 9. Um, Micah says, listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, 
Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to your word and we know that it is a weighty thing that's supposed to have authority in our lives, and so it should. But we need your voice to be the one who proclaims it. And so we ask and plead for your voice to be speaking to us, that you would give us humble and soft hearts to respond to your word, that you would give us the power and the grace to respond obediently as we should, and that you would use it to not only make us more like your son Jesus, but to help us to make others to fall in love with you. Father, have your way in our lives and say what it is that you desire. We ask and pray this in the saving work of Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I was on the phone with one of you on Wednesday, and he's leaving right now. <laughs> oh, okay. We agreed together that the state of our nation has really left us truly speechless. No words could really come to our mind to explain the emotions that we're feeling. <laughs> Beyond that, <laughs> that again, people were, were publicly promoting infanticiding, and it seems that they were getting away with it. And furthermore, that, that masses were coming in behind them to support them, and, and it seems like that it feels like in some ways that no one is sounding the emergency alarm that should be sounded. Not that we want people to yell, scream, and holler, but it also seems like an injustice like this being promoted should provoke a little bit more public outcry. And to give the benefit of the doubt, some things were said at the State of the Union address that does speak to the issue, and I'm glad. But it was these things that was kind of our context really also for our message last week, if you were here. With it so fresh in our minds, I really couldn't see last week's text apart from these political issues. And so again, in verses 9 through 11, Micah basically summarizes his oracle thus far that he was stating in Micah 3. He says, listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob... You rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice, her leaders issues rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for money. We'll stop right there in the middle of verse 11. First off, maybe some of you missed it. I told you that Micah is speaking to the southern kingdom here, often called Judah, yet he states he's speaking to the house of Jacob and the rulers of Israel. Israel is sometimes the name given to just the northern kingdom. However, we know Jacob and Israel are more general terms for the entire race of God's people there. And, and furthermore, Micah makes a more specific reference in verse 10 to Zion in Jerusalem, which were undoubtedly in the southern kingdom, and that's why we know he's speaking to them specifically. Yet, what we covered last week were, were strict judgments from God against the social, uh, political, and religious leaders of the time, the prophets. And that is what Micah just summarized here, that the political leaders abhor justice. You remember, at the beginning of chapter 3, 
God says to the leaders, aren't you supposed to know what is just? And so rather than knowing what is just, they abhor justice. Another way of saying it is that they regard justice as an abomination. Justice uh, produces feelings of disgust and hatred in the hearts of these leaders. Uh, one commentator has stated that just as others are repelled by filth and refuse, Judah's leaders find the practice of justice highly disagreeable. Furthermore, they pervert everything that is right. Uh, the ESV would say that they make crooked all that is straight. So not only do they hate justice, but for the things that are straight, they can't help but make it crooked. Um, it, it's like an infection. So I want you to remember that. It's going to come back later in the sermon. They, it's like an infection. We covered the sins of the leaders of the prophets last week. The point being that they build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with infection. Isaiah, prophesying the same time as Micah, says in Isaiah chapter 1, 21-23, talking about Jerusalem, the faithful city, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice, righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your beer is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. This is supposed to be the holy city. This is supposed to be the city of God where the one true God resides, yet his people are building his city on injustice bloodshed and evil. And so Micah says, of this generation, of these evil people, picking it up in the middle of verse 11, yet they lean on the Lord, saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thick. Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. See, this is where the proverbial Paul writing to the Romans rounds the corner from chapter 1. Ew, gross, sinful, disgusting pagans, to chapter 2. Ew, you're just as bad. This is where Micah has moved from, yes, Samaria is bad, but you're just as bad, Judah. This is where we need to move from you, gross governors promoting infanticide, to what am I guilty of? What am I guilty of? Instead of thinking about our 21st century nation, which, of course, as I brought up last week, is too frightening of a measure similar to what we're reading, propagating similar injustice, I also firmly believe that the church is who we need to be talking about here, since in many ways the church is the new Israel in the Bible. And here's the point. You and I cannot be practicing sin, praying that God will still bless us. You and I cannot claim to be on the Lord's side when our practices show otherwise. 
The evangelist John hammers this in his letters. He says in 1 John 2, 4-6, The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Or 1 John 3, 6, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And the, the point of John is not to condemn us when we do mess up or not to cause us to doubt our salvation, but like James, as we covered earlier in the year, John echoes him and says, little children, we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. We Christians can talk a good game a lot. We Christians can talk a bad game a lot. Especially when it comes to politics, especially when it comes to injustices in the world. We could get together, moan and complain about infanticide, and rightly so. But have we, and have I considered what I'm guilty of? Have I considered what I'm doing to make a difference to go along with what I'm saying? And I'm not saying, nor does the Bible say, it's got to be one or the other, but it needs to be both. What you say needs to match with what you do. We can't claim to belong to God in name if we don't belong to God in action. We're playing with fire if we do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe that was the Holy Spirit speaking. <laughs> <laughs> The people in Micah's time rested back in God's character in the wrong way. And I want you to hear this too, that, that you and I can rely on God's faithfulness. We can rely on His forgiveness. We can rely on His dependence and trustworthiness. We can rely on that He forgives 70 times 7 for when we do sin. John also says that we have an advocate for whenever we do sin but we cannot take advantage of him. Despite what we think, we cannot fool God. And we do not have him figured out if we think that his grace is an excuse to sin, that his love and kindness is simply a, a safety net, that his character is what it is so we can take advantage and abuse his grace. I was watching a historical drama TV show about a well-known political family in America in ages past, I won't mention who, and when I get into the story here, you'll figure that it could be any number of people because it's all too familiar of a story. But the premise is, is that the wife would catch her husband cheating on her all the time. And though she showed indignation and jealousy and upset, she soon began to show resignation, um, indifference, and resentful acceptance. And when, uh, when asked about why she didn't leave the guy, she would say things, well, I'm just here for him to succeed. And she's just saying, I'm, I'm hoping to share a little in his glory when he would succeed, and, and basically relegated herself to a glorified secretary. And God is not a glorified secretary. God is not in a relationship with us to make sure we get to do all the things we want to do, and he's our fallback. God is patient, kind, and forgiving, not because he wants us to have our way with sin, but as Paul says, rather in Romans 2, 4-9, do you despise the riches of his kindness, 
restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking to disobey the truth and are obeying unrighteousness, affliction, and distress for every human being who does evil. And Paul says this to a bunch of self-righteous professing Christians with Jewish background who were picking on Gentiles who come out of a very pagan, sexualized, a very American-type culture. And so again, for the audience of, of Micah, if Southerners were hearing Micah for the first two chapters, that's right, that's expected of those Northerners, Jerusalem haters, shrine-setter-uppers, but not us. We have Jerusalem, we have the presence of God, isn't the Lord among us? No one no disaster will overtake us. They would reason that, that God appointed David as king. God blessed Solomon, the greatest king who ever lived. He made the temple in Jerusalem, and we're in the southern kingdom. We never left, and we have the holy city, and we still have God's presence. As if God chained himself to the temple in Jerusalem. Whenever David was even considering a temple, Second Samuel 7, verse 5 tells us that God told Nathan the prophet to say back to David, are you to build me a house to live in? Right? This was news to David, surrounded by nations who did have little gods made out of statues and put up in shrines. But this was news from God Almighty, creator of the heaven and the earth as we know him. He was saying, as if I need a house. When I delivered Egypt by signs and wonders and pillars of fire and Bringing down an entire sea on an army, do you think a god of that power gets cold? Needs shelter? Needs housing? Have I ever asked you for one? That's my butchered paraphrase of Second Samuel 7. You can read that later on your own time. It's not that the Lord is in the temple and among us, so he's obligated to help us. But the judgment is this, says Micah. Therefore... Because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. The Jerusalem that Micah's generation knew was not built by God. Micah just said, rather, it was built with bloodshed and injustice. And now these very people who built Jerusalem with bloodshed and injustice are responsible for the unbuilding of it. Because of you, it will be plowed like a field. It will become ruins. And notice that it's just called the Temple Mount. There's no Lord in there anywhere. Also notice something else striking. The proverbial backhanded, humble Christian slap is in full swing because Micah is using some familiar language. In Micah 1.6, God judges Samaria. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. And now God's judgment is in similar language, but instead it is not Samaria. It is Jerusalem. It is Zion, the holy city. 
So God is saying, I can't distinguish you from your northern cultic sister. <laughs> sure, you have the holy city Jerusalem and you have the temple, so what? You're both in the same league. You're both bad. You both have the scarlet letter on you. You're both wearing black cowboy hats. You're both despicable. There's not you, Jerusalem, but there's always Samaria. She's always worse. You can always count on Samaria to be worse. No, God doesn't play favorites. In fact, Paul in Romans 2 would continue for us aptly. There is no favoritism with God. All those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. And so this is precisely Judah and Jerusalem's false comfort here. As if God would never judge them simply because they have Jerusalem. They're basically saying, hey, I don't sin in this way. <laughs> and the northern kingdom seceded from Jerusalem. We didn't do that. Just don't look at my other sins, God. That's what's happening. And we do this all the time. James, the half-brother of Jesus, also talking about God not showing favoritism, tells us, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. So don't hear me wrong as we think about the last message through Micah. Horrible injustices happening in the world and by unbelievers, and they take place and require God's judgment. Abortion is a horrible injustice, and Christians should certainly cry out against injustice, just not in a self-righteous way. We can't demonize any person for any sin whenever we're guilty of sin ourselves. It should mute the self-righteousness within us. Some people act like that that can't happen. I get that. Some people act like, don't tell me about my sin when you're sinful too. When the reality is, is that God knows a world where sinners can point out the sins in each other humbly. Novel idea. Parents should be doing that all the time with their kids. It's called training in righteousness. But the only way that is possible is if there is a perfect frame of reference, a perfect standard, a, per a perfect ground to land on. Being a sinner myself, I cannot confront the sin in you if I'm an imperfect frame of reference and all I know is imperfect standards. But there, if there is a perfect frame of reference, a perfect moral code, a perfect ethic that is outside both of us, well, now both sinners can confront the sins in others, not because they're drawing from their imperfect well, but because they're drawing from the perfect well, the perfect standard. And that's the hope that Micah leans into going into chapter 4. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And before we unpack this a bit more phrase by phrase, I want you to see how this speaks into the perfect frame of reference I was talking about. Note symbolically that the mount of the Lord's house is on top of the mountains, Raised above the hills, peoples are streaming to it. People are coming to the house of Jacob. 
That is describing that he is high, exalted, lifted up above every other person. He's transcendent, which means he's outside of our fallen sinful humanity. That's why he's perfect and different from us. He's not Samaria. He's not Jerusalem. He's altogether better, greater, and in fact perfect. You hear that? Hopefully. What is this perfect frame of reference? The mountain of the Lord's house raised above the hills in the house of the God of Jacob. Paul, uh, Micah gives us some clues to unpack this, and it starts with a time reference, quote, in the last days. I'm going to give you two theological words to understand here. I've probably taught it before, so now it's review. The words are exegesis and eisegesis. Greek words, the prefix exa, meaning out of, and Jesus, meaning guide or interpret, and then Isa is then into, so the idea of interpreting into. And the hope for every Christian and teacher of the Bible is to interpret from out of the Bible, to exegete the Bible, instead of doing eisegesis, which means reading into the Scriptures. Is that easy enough to understand? Okay. Now what I will say myself included, I don't think any of us are perfect. Whenever we do eisegesis, I hope for every genuine humble teacher, it's by accident. <laughs> that we might think we have a doctrine that is 100% biblical, but maybe we just didn't do enough homework, and so we take that doctrine and that idea, that concept, and then we read it into the scripture. Case in point here, the last days, I would hazard a guess and say that some of you, upon hearing those words, saw the time reference as a future from now era, probably the days where our world's history is consummating and finishing. And you would say, well, I read the Bible literally, literally, and Micah says the last days, he must mean the last days. And I would humbly think that we would do well to ask, does Micah mean the last days of the world? when he didn't put the words in there, the last days of the world, or of human history, or of all of humanity and history and existence. Furthermore, since Micah is talking about the mountain of the Lord's house, which has a direct connection or a relation to what we just read back one verse earlier, Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. It seems to me, if we tried to come to Micah without eisegesis, that is, without taking the phrase, the last days, and then slapping our own, hear that, our own 21st century Western American mindset that crops up in our brains and says, well, the last days means the end of the world, and somehow we don't question that. We don't say, well, where's the phrase into the world even in there? Don't question my superb judgment in these matters. <laughs> the last days means the end of the world. If we can get around that and do exegesis and draw out from the text in Micah 3 to 4, he seems to be concerned with a temple mound here. And maybe he is referring to when the temple is demolished. The last days of Micah's concern here, the last days of the temple. Maybe he's referring to another establishment of the temple, so Micah 4.1 would seem to suggest. Do you follow me? I'm not saying if you agree, but do you follow me? Okay. To get a further understanding, 
of what last days Micah is talking about, let's draw more clues from the surrounding text. Not because I'm trying to prove a point, but I'm just trying to draw out from the scripture, as opposed to eisegetes, take my idea and putting it in the scripture. So we know right away something a little interesting about the temple. It says, oh, I guess I was supposed to put up there, sorry. Micah chapter 4, verse 1 says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. So the mountain of the Lord's house, Jerusalem, sat on a hill, and the temple as well, we get that, but then there seems to be some supernatural landscaping going on. It will be established at the top of the mountains and then raised above the hills. Let's see if the following lines help us here in the scripture. Micah writes, peoples will stream to it, the mountain of the Lord's house, and many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And then the remainder of verse 2, which we'll cover more thoroughly next week, but it says, he will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this clues us in that the purpose of mentioning the height of the temple is related to the fact, surprising to the Jew, that many nations, plural, meaning Gentiles, will come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. A bunch of Gentiles saying, let's go to Yahweh. Let's go to the God who came out of Israel. So it could be, as we couple this fact, other nations wanting to come to Israel's God with the first part of that verse, which I called supernatural landscaping, that the temple is on a mountain, above mountains, raising above hills, that Micah is talking about the exaltation of a re-established temple, that Yahweh is so exalted, so above, so transcendent, that he attracts the attention of many nations and not just Israel, that he is God over all, not just over Israel. Does that make sense? If that's the case, then the last days will be a day where many nations will come to adore Israel's God. Then I hesitate to state the obvious, but it seems to me that God through Micah is talking about us here. Because if you are a Christian... And if I don't know all of your backgrounds, I don't think any of you are Jewish, but if you are part of the peoples, you are part of the many nations in that passage. There's speculation about the book of Hebrews being written by Paul. I know we're changing subjects, but I'll bring it around. The writing style and the vocabulary of the original language seem to be a little bit different from Paul, but the content and the theology in the book of Hebrews is so very much like Paul. And I bring that up because knowing Paul was a well-studied theologian, and maybe that he borrowed Micah's backhanded humble Christian flat technique from in, in his Romans 1-2 progression, but if he's somehow involved in the writing of Hebrews, maybe he had Micah in his mind when that letter was written too. I say that because Hebrews opens up saying, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways in these last days. So the author of Hebrews then, at that time, 
estimated to be at its latest, written around 60s AD, called those days the last days. And he says, in these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son. God appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to those to theirs. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son Jesus, and he didn't uses a lot of words. It must be Paul. And then he says, Jesus, who basically is exalted. <laughs> he said it a lot better than I did, but I'm just summarizing that for you because it sounds like what Micah is saying the last days will be. A day where the God of Israel, whom when he incarnates is Jesus, will be exalted. He's better than all of creation. Furthermore, in Hebrews 12, the author taps into Micah's temple imagery, the mountain imagery, and makes another statement that is happening at the present day in the author's time and continues to where we're at now. In the broader context of Hebrews 12, the author is warning against rejecting God's grace, neglecting his salvation. The temple, the people of his time were in a season of persecution, and they were tempted to go back to a religion that was more acceptable and tolerated in their time, namely Judaism. So the author makes the connection to the holy mountain that Moses had. And he says in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what could be touched, to blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. So the author is saying, you have not come to this physical mountain. And as you read more into Hebrews, which we will hear in a second, but I'm just giving you a preview, a spoiler alert. <laughs> but he says, when you and I gather to worship the Lord our God, though he be unseen, it is an entirely better experience. That's the overarching theme of Hebrews, Old Testament shadows, Jesus is the substance. Old Testament prototypes and foreshadows, Jesus is the fulfillment. Old Testament is peering into the mysteries of God. Jesus is the mysteries of God revealed. And so we haven't come to this mountain that Moses had, but rather the author says, instead you have come, present tense, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God, who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. That is, we've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, and we are made perfect. And the author sees this spiritual heavenly reality a present-day thing. Right now, our gathered presence with God is in a spiritual, unseen community. You and I worship today Jesus glorified. We worship today with myriads of angels. 
We worship today with all the saints of every generation. We worship today in a physical place, but also in a spiritual reality. Micah preached of the last days where the mount of the Lord would be exalted and many nations and people would stream to the goddess Jacob. And Jesus came and condemned the temple and said to those around him, destroy this sanctuary, this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And he was destroyed, and he did rise again, and it rose higher than any other temple has before, because every nation is invited to him. And so the Bible ends up being about Jesus again, sorry. And I want to close with a very fitting illustration, because I told you to remember something eons ago, that I haven't threaded that needle yet. I told you to remember that back in Micah's judgment on Judah's leaders, namely, that they pervert everything that is right, chapter 3, verse 9, or the ESV would say, make crooked all that is straight. So not only do they hate justice, but for the things that are straight, they can't help but make it crooked. It's like an infection. I wanted you to remember that. Because throughout the ministry of Jesus, he corrects this. Jesus is a redeemer, and he just can't help but redeem, poor guy. He can't help but correct everything that is wrong. He can't help but make straight everything that is crooked. And he has a very physical, symbolic illustration with this, and that is, under Moses' law, lepers were required to yell out, unclean, right? Don't touch me. Uh, I'm unclean. I'll infect you. And then, though Moses may not have intended it, what religious people do is make rules out of that. And so that went into social aspects. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't dine with sinners. Don't associate with prostitutes. Don't do that. But poor Jesus seems to be a rebel. He went to the unclean. He went to the sinners. And shocking thing, he didn't get infected. Rather, the cleanliness of Jesus was contagious. Lepers were made clean. The ill were healed. The prostitutes came clean. The sinners he was dining with, ended up righting wrongs like Zacchaeus. Friends, we are the temple of God, and Jesus is still doing that today. And so if you think about last week, and look at the end of Micah's third chapter, and you say, this is America, it's totally depressing. Or if you feel convicted and say, I'm just as bad, it's totally depressing, take hope that we're in the last days, Jesus is a better temple, peoples and nations are flocking to him, and he's contagious. And if you're unclean, you can come in contact with the clean to be healed. And furthermore, you are the body of Christ, so go out and infect people. (laughs) Start with those around you. Pray for the holy infection of those building up their own bad kingdoms, those like Micah preached against. Sooner or later, our holy God might just infect them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, Paul tells us that don't we know that we are the temple of God? And we thank you that what Micah was leaning into and hoping in his dark, dark time that you have brought and fulfilled. Furthermore, we're grateful that we can look forward to an even more glorified and more perfect kingdom that one day you are coming again to restore everything. But in the meantime, help us to be with you, doing what you call us to do. Help us, like Jesus, to reach out to those that are unlovable. 
Help us, like Jesus, to spread your love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and the good news to all of those around us. And when things look dark, 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 help us to take hope, hope, hope. Because that's where you show up, that you are a redeemer. You can't help but to redeem things. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us this next week. Help us to know and savor in every situation in our lives the things where we think nobody knows, nobody cares, the things that look dark and we don't know how we're going to come out of it. Help us to take complete hope in you, to know that you will pull us out of it. We don't know how, we don't know when, we don't know why, but help us to take hope that you are a redeemer. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.